0: My name is Greg Stebbin. For over 20 years, I was an editor with Men's Health Magazine and I've been a podcaster for Forbes Magazine and written a lot of books. I'm not in Poland in any official capacity. Like a lot of people, I ask myself, is there anything I can do? And I realized that being here and doing interviews like this could help raise money for Ukraine. And so I got on a plane and I came here.
1: And you're there specifically, aren't you, to to help raise money for Ukrainian ambulances?
0: So we generally think of an ambulance as something that, comes to your house or your work or a car wreck and whisks you away to the hospital. In Ukraine, in the time of war, ambulances are actually used as mobile hospitals. So they're treating people right there at a place of a battle. And I'm sure Russia knows that because one of the things that's been happening is that the Russian army has been destroying ambulances as quick as they can. So Ukraine has lost more than 70 ambulances. And I'm working with a group that's already raised over a million dollars. And is in the process of, I think, sending now the 15th and 16th ambulances there. And we're just trying to raise money and replace the blown up ambulances as quickly as we can.
1: Where did they get the ambulances?
0: Well, this is a group in Belgium. It's a bunch of people there who are largely working in the sector and mostly educated in the U.S. And the U.S. part is significant because when you talk with this group, they have sort of a Silicon Valley can-do startup mentality about this. This organization, it's called BE for Ukraine, and you can find them on Facebook and you can find them. They have a website, BE, BE is for Belgium, BE for Ukraine. You can also find out more about it by going to beams.live/ambulance. B slash ambulance, B-E-A-M-Z dot live slash ambulance. That's a more direct fundraising page. They literally came together around March 9th, actually. I mean, they did what I did. They were looking at the war and saying, what can we do? And they identified ambulances as a need. They recognized that amongst themselves because they had so many skills within the tech universe that they probably could put their minds and their hands and their skills together and do something. I think they're blown away by the fact that they've already raised a million dollars, but they'd like to raise a lot more and I'd like to help them.
1: Have you thought, though, about being an American in the way? I know your intentions are good.
0: It's a great question, Pat, and and I ask myself a lot. So this was my third attempt to come here and have a reason to be here. And the first two attempts, I'll tell you what my thinking was, the first two ideas I had of how I could be helpful, I realized I can't be helpful, so I'm not going. Uh, The first was uh, President Zelensky announced that there was a website you could go to and you could sign up to help fight with the Ukrainian army. Now, I'm 60 years old and no one's going to look at me and say, yeah, that's the guy we want to give a machine gun to. But I thought maybe there was a need for other things, communications and things like that. So as soon as I heard about it, I went to that website. I looked at it. I realized it's really for people with military experience. And I had exactly the same concern you just raised. I I didn't want to go there and be in the way and actually create more problems than I could solve. So I didn't go. I then had another idea about trying to get a group of people to go but I ran it by some friends of mine who are Polish, Ukrainian. I mean, people who really understand foreign affairs and things. And they yes. said, that's a nice idea, but it's a terrible idea. Please don't do that. So I didn't go. My third attempt <laughs> was one to is basically doing what I'm doing. I knew I could go to Warsaw. I wasn't going to be in anybody's way because there's no war here. Yeah. And I knew that I could talk to people and i uh, identified a good group to raise money for and I knew that mm-hmm. I knew that I could get on the radio and tell a good story and help understand what's going on here and perhaps have them see that they could help as well and one of the ways they could help was by helping to buy an ambulance.
1: How long do you uh, think you're going to stay?
0: I bought a ticket for a month. So I arrived on April 9th. I have a ticket home on May 8th. I will stay longer if I think it's useful for me to continue to be here. I have a very supportive wife. I think my dog's a little upset about it, but my mm-hmm. wife is very supportive. I'll stay as long as I think I can help because I think that this is one of the most important, one of the most consequential events of my lifetime. And I don't I don't want to look back and say, I could have done more and I didn't do it.
1: What is the atmosphere like there in Warsaw?
0: It's interesting, even in the 10 days I've been here, there's been a change. Shortly after I got here, I started volunteering at the central train station in Warsaw where refugees are coming into. I started volunteering there with World Central Kitchen, which of course we've all heard of. And even 10 days ago, There were so many more people coming in by train than there are now. It's really come down to almost a trickle. Mm -hmm. And so that obviously has an impact on everything that has happened here. But if you talk to people who live in Warsaw, the stories they'll tell you about what it was like in the first days after the invasion. It was like watching an old World War II movie. I mean, people just literally left their houses And drove to the train station or drove to the border and just started putting strangers in their cars and ferrying them back to Warsaw and going back and doing it again and making food and opening their homes. I mean, we've all heard this, but it it impacts you much more powerfully when you're talking to the people who have actually done it. I mean, I've met a lot of people who who just had different groups of strangers coming and staying in their house, different groups of strangers that they drove from the border to Warsaw and then sat and helped people determine, where do I go from here? Do I stay in Warsaw? Do I go to another city in Poland? Do I go to another country? Just imagine you had to leave your house with very short notice, with all you could put in a roller bag, and you knew you couldn't go back until some undetermined time in the future. What would you do? Of course, in the U.S., we all speak the same language and we use the same money and we largely have the same customs. Here in Europe, every time you cross a border, everything changes, including language. So it's hard to even imagine how disruptive that would be to your life. And if you're now traveling with children or elderly family members, it's sort of unfathomable. We're talking about two and a half million people coming here. It's, it's unbelievable.
1: Have refugee type camps been set up yet?
0: Well, they're all refugee camps. I did visit one uh, that has about five to six, thousand people in it. I visited another one that on any given day has two to three thousand people in it. And I have to tell you, it is one of the most depressing things I've ever seen in my life. and I'm not being critical of the polls when I say that. I don't know how you house two to three thousand people and not have it be depressing. It's not that the building is depressing, it's just that there's two to 3,000 people there who've been displaced, and the reason they're there is they haven't figured out where to go yet. So they're both considered transients. And the idea is that people will be here. Well, the one I visited with two to 3,000 people, the idea is that the people will only be there for a few days. At the larger one, though, I think what's happening is that these are people who don't have a lot of options and perhaps are not tech savvy. So they know how to get online and look for places to go or things like that. I mean, it's just, it's a full mix of people. And the Poles are just doing unbelievable things to help the Ukrainians. It is is staggering.
1: Some of these refugees who normally they would have the wherewithal to do things like stay in an Airbnb or a hotel, but they can't access their money because of the situation in Ukraine. So that makes it even more crazy. And what do you do? How long do you wait before trying to go back? Can you go back? can you ever go back?
0: So one of the things I'm doing here is doing a live online show every day at Sue Eastern on an online video platform called Bean. And you can see it. It's every day at two. The website is live. And what I'm doing there is interviewing a lot of Ukrainians and Poles. Yesterday, I interviewed a woman who has had a series of families come and stay with her. Her son has been back and forth to the border, which is, I think, a four-hour drive, countless times picking people up as they got safely into the country. And one of the things she said that gets to the question you just asked is, she said, in the first days, people would come and stay, and they had money, and so they would say, well, I'll go get an Airbnb, or even, you know, you don't have to feed me, I'll go get some food, I have money. And then the next thing you know, their money was worthless. So take the picture I painted of you have a roller bag and you have to leave your home and you have no idea when you can go back and your money is worthless and you don't speak the language. It's almost like reality keeps pulling away every asset or tool or thing you have to leave you sitting there with nothing. It's devastating. When you look in people's eyes, it's it's almost like you can see the, the light going away.
1: You mentioned the refugee centers and the refugee camps. I guess they're waiting there until they can see how the landscape is changing.
0: I'm going to tell you what my theory is about this. The people who came early, first of all, remember the earliest refugees largely did not see war. They left before the war got to wherever they were living. So just from a mental health perspective, they were in a very different place from the people who are coming now who may have seen the most horrible atrocities. So on top of everything else, they have that trauma. But my sense is that what has happened is the people who get to Poland, who are the most sophisticated, the most educated, you know, there's a, a huge IT workforce in Ukraine, many of whom worked in other countries. So they were being supported by their company or they have lots of friends they could pull out their phone and just go on Facebook or go on Twitter or go on Instagram and say to a friend in Belgium or a friend in Germany or a friend in Italy, hey, I'm stuck. And you know, people all over the world have been opening their home. So I think The more educated, the more affluent, the more tech savvy you were, the easier it was for you to get to a semi-permanent place where you felt safe. I think if we went to one of these refugee camps here, what we would find is this whole other population of Ukraine, which is, which is not well educated, which is not tech savvy, but we're back at home, we're more agrarian, farmers and things like that. And it's going to take more work to get them placed because they're probably the ones who were least capable of doing it on their own.
1: You got COVID. Do you know how you got it? Or you have a? There, is there a place that's suspect that you think, yeah, I probably got it there? And how is that affecting your stay in Poland? Well, I guess it's making you a lot more solitary.
0: I mean, first of all, let's go back to me being in the U.S. and planning to come here. My wife and I talked about what is the risk of this? even though I knew I was probably going to be at a higher risk, And she and I have been incredibly careful during the last two years. So this was completely out of character for me, but I just said, you know what, again, I'm willing to have COVID to help if there's something I can do to help. And my guess is probably they got COVID probably either by volunteering at the train station or being at the refugee camp. And I'm only saying that because these are places where you just have a lot of people. And look, I think the recipe for COVID is a lot of people. And you know, I think that's just another aspect of this that complicates it and makes it even harder for everybody. I, but i it hasn't changed what I'm doing. I'm reaching out to people to raise money and doing interviews like this. And, okay, my voice is a little deeper, but otherwise it's not going to stop me at all.
1: And you're, you're holed up in an Airbnb and using Uber Eats. That's how you're getting by, Correct.
0: Yeah, you know, being in Warsaw is a lot like being in New York City. You know, you, you when you want to go somewhere, you call a Lyft. When you want to stay somewhere, you use Airbnb. And when you want to eat, you call Uber Eats. So, but that's also, in a way, part of the paradox of this. is On one hand, let's go back to the train station, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in the train station, and I'm volunteering with World Central Kitchen, and I'm serving these refugees coffee as soon as they've gotten off their train. And you have to remember that these are people that spent days getting to the border, finally were safe when they crossed over into Poland, got on a train to Warsaw. So first Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. I mean, first they knew they were safe. That was at the border. Now this is their first stop Warsaw in the train station. So, okay, I took care of safety. Well, what about the future now? Where, mm. where am I going to stay? What am I going to eat? What am I going to do for work? And that's the point at which I'm handing people a cup of coffee. And another thing you asked me was, are people going back? They, they think about a half a million people from Poland that's gone back now. And this is really a testament to how strong these people are. When you talk to Ukrainian refugees, many of them, for instance, don't want to go to the United States. They want to go back and the further you get away the harder it is to get back then you go anywhere in europe and get back to ukraine on a train but once you get on a plane and fly to somewhere like canada and the us it just becomes a lot harder and a lot more complicated but over and over again what you'll hear when you talk to a refugee is i'm going back when can i go back how soon can i go back and and i find that fascinating and lots of them have gone back for instance on this beans online network i told you about there's a woman from ukraine who's been doing a show there she left the country with her husband and three kids. The husband was able to leave because they had three children. Otherwise, men have to stay behind and fight. And then as soon as he got his wife and kids somewhere safe, he turned around and went back, not to fight, but because he's a farmer and he realized if he and other farmers didn't grow food, there was going to be a food crisis in Ukraine.
1: It's interesting with many Ukrainians who I've spoken to about this. They have family uh, back in the old country, as they say, and they want them to come here and they don't want to they don't want to leave have you uh, talked to an, anybody who said to you greg you're crazy to be there
0: i'm not in any danger in warsaw i mean getting covid was the biggest risk i was taking now, I am planning on going to the border, which is, well, I won't go if it doesn't appear to be safe. But I am actually hoping that one of those ambulances that goes to Ukraine is driven. I don't get to drive one of them. I, I would, mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. I've come this far and did not go to the border. That's something I want to see with my own eyes so I can tell you about it.